Hello and welcome to episode 118 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. Today I'm thrilled to introduce the second of our new trio of hosts, Stuart Sierra. Many folks from the Clojure world will know Stuart from his code contributions, particularly the component library. Stuart's also a frequent conference speaker and the author of not one, but two books on Clojure. Those of us who work with him know Stuart as that lovely, caring guy who keeps pretending to be a curmudgeon. This week, Stuart will be talking to another Cognitech, Paul DeGrandis. Paul is a lead developer, instructor, and architect at Cognitech. And most importantly, at least for the purposes of this episode, Paul is also the genius lurking behind the Vase project. But more on that when we get to the show. But before we do, we have a few announcements. There's going to be a closure bridge in Toronto on February 24th and 25th, 2017. So go on over to closurebridge.org to find out more. Closure West is happening in Portland, Oregon on March 30th and 31st for the conference with training available on March 27th and 28th. The training will include an intro to Closure and Closure Spec. Have a look at 2017.closurewest.org. That's the numerals 2017. Finally, Euroclosure will be happening in Berlin on July 20th and 21st. The call for papers as well as opportunity grant applications will open on Monday, March 13th. Go to 2017.euroclosure.org for more information. If you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast.cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on to Stuart and Paul in episode 118 of the Cognicast. go. Hello everyone. Today is Friday, January 27th, 2017, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Stuart Sierra, and I'm happy to welcome my fellow Cognitect, Paul DeGrandis, back to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You are welcome. Happy to have you here. Uh, As uh, we mentioned to you earlier, we like to start off the show by asking a question of all of our guests. And that is to describe some experience of art. Could be anything at all, just something that you found interesting. Yeah. Uh, this, this question always gives me trouble. I always have a hard time finding something in my brain. But I think I have a good one. In the month of February, there's a contest called RPM. And okay. the goal is to write and record an entire album of music in the month of February. Ah, uh, like this, uh, National Novel Writing Month in exactly, uh, November. Yeah. The, the, exactly. And so they always choose cold months or dreary months where you know creativity or motivation is usually lacking. And right. the experience of trying to write and record and then master songs all in a month is daunting. Um, but the result is, you know, you, you give up things that aren't important. You know, you, you find, you very quickly find things that you can shed. Right. And I, and I find a lot of the recordings that come out of RPM are 
you know, somehow more honest or, or more authentic, you know, sure, the feeling, sure. the, the essence of the songs really come through. Nice. Um, and it was started here in New Hampshire, uh, but now it's an international thing and there's these great parties and that's just around the corner. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Cool. Have you participated in this as a, as a writer or a participant? I have many years now in a row um, and I will be this year as well. Excellent. Well, maybe we'll uh, borrow some of your music and play it on the show sometime. Embarrassingly so. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, that sounds like fun. Um, and definitely an opportunity for all kinds of uh, desperate creative measures. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so the topic we brought you here to talk about today, or the most interesting one I think we are scheduled to talk about today, I'm not going to say the name of it before you do. So I will let you establish the precedent for how we're going to pronounce the name of this project. Sure. I, I feel like I want, I want people to feel free to pronounce it however they want. I say that the project's name is Vase, but, but oftentimes people will pronounce that thing as Vaz, and that's okay too. I'm all yeah. right with Vaz. Yeah, it seems to be one of those words that people grew up pronouncing it one way and are shocked to discover that someone might pronounce it any other way. Vase, Vase, Vaz, whatever. Yes, exactly. So we'll go with vase for uh, this, uh, or was it vase? Sorry, vase for uh, this episode. And uh, tell us about vase. What is it? Sure. So um, vase is a project that's over two years in the making now. Um, it is a library to help you write data-driven microservices on top of Pedestal. And in 2014 at ClojureCon, I had given a a talk where Vase was introduced, but not available, not available as open mm -hmm. source at the time. And I very, I said tongue in cheek, you know, Vase is a small container that sits on top of pedestal and is very limited in what it can hold. Right. Uh, and that's, and that's very true today. You know, the data descriptions are very limited in what you can say, uh, but they're fully extensible. So you could always make them say more. And, um, uh, that is the, that is the general what, you know, the, the why is more interesting, I think. Okay, well, well, we'll get into that in just a second. Uh, so uh, you, you said it's a, a container for uh, API services. Where does that fit in? If I'm uh, building an application, what piece is Vase providing? Sure. So uh, when writing a um, a service or an API, you know, oftentimes you're just trying to expose data over HTTP so other clients can can use that data. You know, maybe right. it's a smart single page application or maybe it's a mobile application. And all of that data plumbing um, chews up a lot of time but doesn't deliver a lot of value to your customers. So Vase is there to automate all of the mundane data plumbing um, that would otherwise be chewing up your time so you can focus more on things that face the customer or things that deliver real value for the business. Uh, so so where it fits is, you know, instead of writing all this closure code uh, in Pedestal, you know, and instead of writing all this database code uh, in Clojure, Vase does all that data plumbing for you. It takes a datomic schema and it takes some, some route descriptions and it takes some closure spec specs and it will automatically do all of the data validation and all of the data marshalling and all of the data shaping for you. Um, 
all of the all of the really mundane, boring data plumbing stuff that we just have to do in order to get to value. Got it. So basically, I have a database and I have some data that describes what kind of data is in there, the schema, the specs, and so on. And uh, I give that to Vase and boom, I have a, a web a API for my rich client app or whatever. Correct. Yep. And it follows a lot of sane conventions. And so, you know, HTTP status codes are enforced for you and all these other things that are just annoying to deal with. Yeah, they're all taken care of. So let's uh, go on to that topic we skipped over a second ago. Uh, why? Why Vase? Yeah, so... Besides, we needed something to sit on top of Pedestal because we needed a pedestal. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, besides the pun, uh, <laughs> you know, why... Which is a great it? reason, let's, let's face it. Yes, yes, we love our puns at Cognitech for sure. So there's this whole mindset about... Uh, delivering value to customers and, and taking actions that deliver value. And I think it's it's best said in a book called uh, The High Velocity Edge by an author, his last name is Spear. And he says, today, sustainable competitive advantage has to be won by creating internal capacity to improve and innovate fast and without let up. And that one quote from the book perfectly describes every company that I ever sit down with uh, through through the consulting business of of Cognitect. Mm -hmm. You know, they know they have to move forward. They know they have to move forward faster. They know they're sitting on a bunch of data that has a lot of value in it. Yeah. Uh, but they can't seem to get that value out, right? They can't seem to to go fast enough. Their tools don't let them go fast enough. Mm -hmm. And so the real why of Vase is let's get all of that value out of the data as fast as possible. Let's automate all of that mundane plumbing so you can focus just on delivering value. And let's do it in a tool that allows you to evolve and move forward fast. So Vase is all about doing all of those things. You know, it's about I show up and instead of spending, you know, weeks or months writing a service and doing all of this plumbing, I spend minutes and I and I have my service and I have my data model and I have my validations all set to go. And as I move forward through time, as my business evolves, as my you know value propositions evolve. The services and the data model can evolve very freely, and, and, and each individual team within an organization could could evolve a vase service independently without without even bothering each other. I mean, it's it's very easy to evolve these things uh, however you need to, and so that's the real why of vase to get to value faster. Got it. Got it. It's it sounds like one of those cases where we're trying to unlock the database or unsilo the database and connect it with other applications and other sources of data very much the case you know in in larger organizations and even in small organizations technology departments get commercial software off the shelf or or start with a framework and that slow, slowly silos their technology and slowly silos their data Right. And then they then they hit a point where they can't even move forward anymore. You know, they've siloed it so much that they can't move forward anymore. Sure, and, sure. And Vase is about blasting through all of that and getting past all of that. So it's it's a vase used as a missile. Is that is that the analogy here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's a large stone pot traveling at high velocity. Well, cool. That sounds 
Great. Um, what uh, what would I need if I were going to adopt it? Uh, you said it's built on top of pedestal, so I assume it requires pedestal uh, as as the minimum foundation. Yep, um, pedestal is uh, required to have the HTTP endpoints. Um, it is very specific to how pedestal works, so Vase can't go without Pedestal. Okay. Uh, and the data model currently is tied to Datomic, but there's nothing stopping you from extending Vase to support a data model that was not Datomic-specific. But Vase out of the box right now. You're on Clojure. You need to be on Clojure 1.9. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're on the latest Pedestal, and you're using Datomic. Cool. Uh, well, that certainly describes a lot of projects I work on, so that would be uh, great. Um, So let's get into some of the details of of how this works. I've only looked at it briefly. Uh, I've looked at some of the example apps and some of the uh, code that's uh, uh, currently in development, I think. Uh, And I notice in the examples, there are uh, fairly uh, detailed uh, descriptions of routes and schema and uh, queries and so forth in Eden files, in EDN data files, but surprisingly not a lot of code. Correct. Yeah, all the code um, is generated automatically by the by the library itself. So Vase, um, the library, has a bunch of pedestal interceptors. Mm-hmm. And then those descriptors have what we call action literals in them. And action literals will expand... Um, either into more Eden or into interceptors. And so by the end of reading that Eden file, you have absolutely everything you need in order to interact with the database or to interact with Pedestal. So no code at all. I mean, that's the beauty of Vase. You show up, you know, I do a line new Vase, my service. I have a data description file and... That's the end of my service. As soon as I turn on Pedestal or, or do a line run or something like that, I can keep editing that data file. And as soon as I hit save, all of those changes are live on the service. Oh, cool. So it's dynamic as well. The It'll automatically reflect changes to those files as you're working on them. Yep. In dev mode, dev mode is as soon as you save that file, you see the changes. And in prod mode, it gets locked down. Got it. Got it. And I think I saw, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seemed, the documentation seemed to suggest that you could also create these services dynamically. You could actually post them to the server and it would create that service based on the description you sent. Is that right? In the original version of Vase, that was default out of the box. (laughs) Okay. You know, people could come along and say, I want to expand the service. I want to expand the service and so on. Um, in the version of Vase that is released as open source, that is no longer default out of the box. But okay. that code is is one function, and it's a very easy function. Um, all the parts of Vase are functions or protocols, so it's really easy to sort of uh, take control of the whole situation and, and, and make the app behave the way you want it to behave. Um, so so no more of posting services and having them magically show up. But okay, I could see that might be a security risk in some <laughs> situations. Yes, yeah, for sure. Uh, 
Cool. So uh, these descriptor files, if I want to write one of them, uh, walk me through what it entails. What what do I have to provide to Vase to get this uh, API service up and running? There are three major parts to a Vase description file. Uh, like you said, it's just Eden, it's just data. Uh, and the three sections all have three very specific namespaced keys. And that's how Vase actually operates. It's going to look for these three keys. Okay. Uh, the very first part are called norms. And Vase norms are just the description of your schema. So you could write uh, standard datomic schema chunks, You, but Vase also supplies a reader literal for writing shorthand chunks of datomic schema, which saves a lot of space and makes it a little cleaner uh, to read and a little cleaner to write. Um, so that's the first chunk. The next chunk is called specs, vase specs. Mm -hmm. And these are closure specs, just like standard closure spec library in closure 1.9. Mm -hmm. And you write those however you want. Literally, however you write them in closure is how you write them here in the vase descriptor. Got it. Uh, those are optional. I mean, if you want to have validation, you can write those. If you don't want to have validation, you certainly don't need to write those. And then the next section is called uh, Vase API. And that describes a bunch of namespaced APIs. So there are, are two things in that sentence, and we're going to pull them apart right now. Okay. One is that a single Vase descriptor can have multiple APIs described in it. That's totally legit. Okay. Um, and however you want to distinguish those APIs, whether you want version names or you want uh, not version names or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, you basically tag those APIs using a namespaced keyword. And then those, those APIs, they describe routes. And the, okay. routes, the routes are described how you would expect. So there's some URL, and then there's some um, HTTP method and then there's an action literal. You know, is this doing a query? Is this doing a transaction? Is this just responding with static data? Is this doing a redirect? And so on. Okay. So uh, an API is a collection of routes. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Okay. And I might have more than one API. Correct. Yep. So you might have, you know, not that this is a good practice, but maybe you have version one of your API and version two of your API and so on. Or maybe you have the main API or the core API. Just like you name files in Clojure or name files sure. in any programming language in order to organize them, you name and tag APIs the same way. I see. So the route itself is not necessarily the topmost thing in the hierarchy. There is the API as a grouping outside of that. Correct, yep. And so that tag for that API will be the first thing, right? So when you start a base service, uh, it gets inserted at an endpoint in your pedestal application, like slash API, and then slash your tag name, and then okay. slash your route name, right? So everything yeah. gets totally namespaced as an API. Great. We definitely like our namespaces in the closure world. That's uh, yes. a, good, a good thing to see. Yes, for sure. So there's a question I had related to this, because this is a topic I've encountered a number of times recently, and that is when you are trying to design some kind of higher level abstraction uh, that is model or domain specific, 
there's uh, often a question that comes up of, do I design this as a pure data structure and make a DSL out of closure data or Eden data? Or do I write a collection of functions and or macros uh, that a user or an application can call to assemble whatever the abstraction is? And of course, these have uh, trade-offs either way. So I'm curious uh, what led you to uh, choose the the data structure route uh, for Vase? I think it's uh, I, I think I've been on this plot line for a long time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We and all so have. this is this is the natural progression of that plot line, and that is that if Vase is a data structure, if if the description of Vase is a data structure, then anything can generate it and anything can consume it, and you can store it wherever you want. I can also pull it apart and I can query it um, either with Datomic or CoreLogic or whatever I want. And so having Vase as data was really important for a few reasons, for for the construction and for the generation, but also for the parsing and uh, uh, sort of for a hidden benefit. There are tools in Vase that allow you to query your own descriptor and enforce properties on top of it. So if oh, you cool. had some business rule that you wanted to ensure was always followed... Um, you can certainly do that in Vase, and you can't do that in the DSL side or in the you know purely code side uh, without doing program analysis, and that's right. That's just that's a huge headache, right? Sure, so, sure. Um, yeah, avoiding that uh, was was important from from the very get go, from when we first imagined Vase as a as a solution. Got it. Yeah, and that's something that I think we've all. A conclusion that a lot of us have come to is that data has the advantage that it's data. You can do stuff with it besides whatever you did with it the first time. You can parse it, you can analyze it, you can generate it. Uh, things that might be much harder or even impossible if all you have is functions or macros being called. Yeah, one hundred percent. And and you know, there's a lot of really great research out there about using data log to do program analysis and mm -hmm. you know you read these research papers and you're like you read about all the pain they have to go through in order to get some AST representation that fits into some sort of data log set of facts right right in the moment that you you get rid of code as the primary source and you say I'm going to express this in a data structure you've solved all of those problems right away right right well, great. Yeah, I wouldn't want to try to query the full possible range of what closure code can be in uh, any language, really. For I sure. think that would be uh, far too difficult to be practical. There's also like a really funny sort of funny benefit uh, to to Vase being pure Eden and using reader literals. Many years ago now, at some conference, I, I gave a talk and I, you know, I said one one great trick about closure is abusing the reader. You know, I don't yes. I feel like people don't abuse the reader enough. And I feel like every single time I go out to a closure function, somebody asks me, What do you mean by abuse the reader? You know, and it's like Vase is the perfect case study about this is what I'm talking about. You know, like the reader is there for your utility. Right. In any way that you can make it do the job for you. Um, you should be doing that. So that's interesting. I did notice the reader literals, and you mentioned them earlier. 
Uh, if you're not, anyone who might not have seen these before, these are the symbols enclosure that start with a hash sign and then a symbol and then usually some other closure data structure. And that actually gets turned into basically a function call that is evaluated inside the reader. So while your data is being read, uh, you can invoke a piece of code that will transform it into some other piece of data. And that is what the reader actually hands back to your program. Yeah, it, it's great, right? Because it's not happening at compile time. You know, the reader enclosure is the same reader enclosure script. And I'll let everybody's imagination, you know, think <laughs> about what you could do with phase descriptors between the reader in both locations. So, yeah, it's great that it happens at read time, right? This yeah. is a pure data thing. And so, so what kinds of things do these do the reader literals get used for in Vase? Are they like constructors for particular kinds of things? Yep, they are constructors. So in some cases, they get turned into just hash maps, like the the schema chunks. Mm -hmm. That reader literal just gets turned into a vector of a bunch of of hash maps, so that it can be consumed by Datomic. Got it. But the other reader literals all get turned into a record type, and that record type then fulfills or satisfies a number of protocols throughout Pedestal so that they become, you know, first-class citizens with everything in Pedestal. I see. So they're a combination of making the syntax more convenient to write and also... Uh, I guess if if they're creating records, that's something that isn't always obvious how to express in Eden. Right. And the, the choice for choosing records to back the reader literals was also um, so that we could control the printer as well. Right. Ah. So if, if you wanted to turn around and print uh, a bunch of vase services back out, they would print the same way. Right. So you can... Oh, nice. So it all round trips. It round trips perfectly through the printer and the reader. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's something that is great when you're working with pure closure data structures, all the built-in ones, but it can sometimes get uh, a little complicated when you start adding your own types and your own records. So so that was the real, that's the the rationale. And and so when you generate that record or when Vase generates the record from the reader literal, it's doing all of the code gen that it needs to do by satisfying all these protocols in Pedestal. And that's where the code gen piece comes in. So uh, I have my application. I've got my uh, descriptor files for Vase. And I assume these are basically combining the things you would use to describe a particular type of thing, not a type in the programming language sense, but a type in the domain space that you're working with. Yep. And... Uh, I've defined these, I run the app, and I've got a web service. Uh, what what form does that web service take? I've seen in uh, a couple of the demos, it runs uh, a Swagger-based uh, uh, UI uh, tool. Is that right? Uh, yep. So it can do a number of things, and it will do more things in the future. So out of the box, it... Uh, it doesn't do Swagger. It doesn't have a Swagger UI. Um, it has sort of a really uh, hand-rolled, very simplistic API browser endpoint. So if okay. you hit just slash API or whatever, wherever your Vase service is rooted at in your in your tree, 
you'll see a list of all the routes and the methods and the things that you can pass to it. So all the information you would get from Swagger UI, but not presented in any sort of pretty or interactive way. Got it. And then after that, all the endpoints uh, just speak uh, JSON and, um, yep, you would just interact with them however you would interact with any other JSON-based web service, you know, whether that's you want to curl it or you want to call it from another web service or or whatever. Okay, so it, it does use JSON as the lingua franca of the internet, which I suppose it is by now. Yeah, and, and perfect term, right? Because the original version of Vase used Eden and then another version of it used Transit JSON, and you can make it use all of those. I mean, it's very easy to change what the wire format is, what the okay. data format is. Um, it's not locked down by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but the default one is JSON, specifically because it's everywhere. You know, this right. is a bridge into all other tools. It shouldn't be an island, right? Vase shouldn't create a bunch of islands for you. It should create a bunch of services that have very natural bridges between them and all of the other tools you have. Yeah. And when it comes to accessibility and compatibility, it's hard to beat JSON these days. Very true. Well, cool. So uh, you've mentioned that uh, this will be open source. Uh, So what does that mean? Uh, Do you know when when that's going to happen? I think by the time the the listeners hear this, we will have made the announcement and the repo will be opened. It will be open sourced under uh, the EPL and it will follow the same contributing guideline as Pedestal. Um, and that and is? is that is uh, you need to sign the Cognitech Contributors Agreement, which is all electronic now. It's very easy to fill out. Mm-hmm. Post an issue for any issues you have or feature requests, so that uh, the community at large can discuss its merits and its design, and then pull requests thereafter. Cool. So, uh, will you be looking for? Uh people to add or extend uh, features in uh, Vase once it's released? I think that what I'm expecting to see, whether this will happen or not, what I'm expecting to see is that many people will write add-on libraries. Not that Vase itself will take on more core action literals. I think the action literals that ship with Vase, that's what you get. You will not get any more unless okay. somebody makes a very compelling argument for more. Yeah. But I would I would see that people would write like a vase dash blah blah blah, and you know that would add more action literals for you. I see. So they could add a different uh, database backend, for example. Yes. Cool. Yep. Sounds or, great. Or new new endpoint actions are are very common. Yeah, and, and that's the great thing. I mean, vase was very designed very specifically to make it extensible at a lot of different spots so that you know code contributions wouldn't have to always be changing the core you know vase was designed to be very very small and very very simple and straightforward and then all of the pieces that you would want to change those are all open for extension great those are the uh, flowers in the vase if we could uh torture that analogy a bit more <laughs> yes exactly this all sounds Fantastic. And uh, it's built on top of Pedestal, of course. So I think we will uh, switch gears slightly here and I'll ask you uh, what's been going on with Pedestal, since I think you are still leading the development of that. Yep. Still leading the the maintenance and the development there. 
And uh, the last time you were on the show, it was just after or just before releasing version 0.3. And uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, version 0.5.2 just came out. So clearly stuff's been happening. Uh, Tell us about it. Yeah. Thinking about Pedestal 03 is like, uh, you know, thinking about a childhood toy. (laughs) (laughs) It seems so far ago and like... It Such does a different... seem long ago. Yeah. So a lot has happened in Pedestal. And from 03 to 05, uh, there was a progression in in moving and uh, refactoring the uh, uh, sort of surface level of Pedestal. You know, mm-hmm. some of the core pieces of Pedestal, the interceptor chain and things like that, were very well engineered to begin with. Um, some changes to them have happened, uh, but for the most part, the very, very core pieces have stayed the same. But the surface area of pedestal was huge. It's like it was really hard to get your hands around. It was really hard to get your head around. Mm-hmm. And the real goal from moving from zero three to zero five was to reduce that surface area to a set of you know very small. Uh, concrete APIs, and those APIs would all be protocols. So Ah. I wanted all of Pedestal to be programmed against protocols so you could extend it however you needed to. Nice. And in that process, once once things were put behind protocols, it became really easy to start breaking Pedestal up into other modules. So like Pedestal Log is a separate module now. Pedestal Route is a separate module. Pedestal Interceptor, the Interceptor chain by itself, is a separate module. So... Previously, you know, because all these things were tied together, people would often compare Pedestal to Ring. But for mm-hmm. me, you know, Pedestal really isn't a uh, HTTP library. You know, it's not a web library. You know, Pedestal is a is a tool set, is a, is a set of libraries for writing back-end applications. Okay. So it could, it could do lots of things. You know, the, the Interceptor chain has nothing about HTTP in it. You know, it, it, it is not HTTP-specific. It's just about combining both the chain of responsibility pattern and the interceptor pattern together to write concurrent and you know high performance applications. Yeah, and that's so- and that's an interesting thing. I think one of the most uh, interesting changes that's happened in Pedestal recently was that refactoring that turned the interceptor pattern framework uh, into its own standalone library. So you can now use that as a tool to build an application even if you're even if what you're doing has nothing to do with web apps or http exactly and and uh, you know i was always i've been sort of giving uh, meetup talks and, and talks here at, at cognitech and about how i really see pedestal and teaching people to think about pedestal from the core abstractions first mm-hmm backwards you know so let's start at interceptors okay let's connect interceptors into a chain okay now let's process a chain with a container around it and so on you know i think that's the way you should think about it and i and i'm seeing the community do that as well you know there there are messages on the mailing list coming through about people just using the chain you know i just want to use the chain to process this piece of data or yeah to, to connect it and internally um at cognitech we're doing that too you know we have pedestal kafka for using the pedestal interceptor chain with kafka and you know we're seeing more and more of that and that really excites me so uh, describe for someone uh who assume we we haven't 
used interceptors or work with them? Is there a short answer to what do interceptors give me? What capability do they provide? Sure. Um, so interceptors uh, provide the capability to separate out your processing into individual steps. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in the case of Pedestal, they're described, they can be described as data, which is great. Mm-hmm. And then assemble those, compose those steps together however you want, and execute them as a chain, at which point any interceptor could go asynchronous or not, but all processing and logging and debugging, all of that nonsense still happens as if nothing was asynchronous at all, nothing was concurrent at all. And so really it's the the interceptor pattern and the interceptor chain are designed to simplify concurrent programming in general. Okay, so I have some big, complicated procedure with many steps, and some of those might be uh, asynchronous or depend on asynchronous I.O., and I can compose them all together using interceptors and uh, not have to deal with the differences between what's happening asynchronously and what's happening synchronously on a thread and so on. Correct, and this pattern is used a ton <laughs> yeah and yeah. and in computing right the the servlet model is the exact same model the way messaging middlewares work is the exact same model right so very robust applications that handle a lot of traffic that handle a lot of processing are engineered this way specifically because this pattern is um, you know so well suited for that kind of use case got it got it so that was the major change i mean i'll go yeah. through a couple of other really quick changes sure sure uh, the logging API is separate, um, and it also includes metrics. So Pedestal, by default, uh, publishes metrics to JMX, but you can redirect that to AWS CloudWatch or uh, StatsD or whatever you want. So uh, there's runtime metrics that happen. Um, Pedestal's router uh, got even faster. <laughs> mm-hmm. So for a, for a small to medium-sized application, it will route in you know, 60 nanoseconds or so, right? Wow. So it can it can pick routing decisions quite fast. Um, and it routes actually in effectively constant time. Um, so log 32n time. Got it. And uh, just a lot of other smaller optimizations like that. And all those, you know, all those small optimizations add up across sure. the entire picture, right? So making the interceptor chain faster, making routing faster, making logging faster, Pushing things out to, to protocols helped a lot to speed up some calls in some cases. And mm-hmm. so, you know, small gains across the whole thing. Where do you see, as it continues to evolve, where would you hope to see Pedestal and maybe Vase as well uh, fit in to the broader closure ecosystem? Obviously, there are lots of uh, there's a fairly robust ecosystem of libraries in Clojure these days and including a lot of things related to uh, web or backend server development. Uh, What role would you like Pedestal and Vase to fill there? That is a fantastic question and and it's one that I think people don't actually ask a lot but but it is really important to me so thank you for asking. You're welcome happy to happy to help. I think that I want to see more people treat Vase as a tool to simplify, you know, robust backend concurrent development, regardless of 
the library they choose for the I.O. or for the container, right? So mm -hmm. I could imagine uh, an LF application and a chunk of that application's processing is done on an interceptor chain. I mean, Interesting. That's, that's a really straightforward idea. But going forward, I, I, I like this idea that uh, people internally in Cognitech and externally in the community are using you know, just the interceptor chain or just the interceptor chain in the logging to extend Pedestal's capabilities into other systems, to tie that interceptor chain into other systems like Pedestal, Kafka, and so on. Nice. Uh, and my real focus will be, of, of course, we're, we're going to keep continuing and evolving the HTTP-specific stuff, but I really want to start growing the catalog for Pedestal of, you know, here's Pedestal for all of these other protocols. You know, here's Pedestal for 9P even, or here's Pedestal... Yeah. Uh, for Kafka or here's pedestal for you know whatever whatever yeah. you're whatever you're doing, and so you could imagine a large collection of libraries that are just additions to the interceptor chain, you know I see. whether they're HTTP specific or not. And for Vase specifically, you know I hope that in sort of the same regard we see people extend Vase's reader literals, the action literals, to extend it into new systems. I think the core part of Vase probably needs to be tightened up a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, I put you know, the current version of Vase, as people are sort of experiencing it now, is where Pedestal probably was at 030. Okay. So it probably needs to be tightened up a little bit. Probably, you know, the API could be a little cleaner. We certainly took all of the lessons we learned from Pedestal when we were cleaning up the API for Vase, but I'm sure there's there's more work to be done. But then I would be really excited to see people extend Vase through the action literals to push Vase into new systems. So basically, you plan to uh, take over all data processing everywhere in Clojure. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, pretty, pretty much. I just I want to have people. I, I'm like on this real big mission to have people stop wasting their time. You know, right. I don't want people to keep building tools or to keep wasting their time. I want people to solve real problems and to deliver real value. And and writing ETL jobs and writing all these data processing pipelines and yeah, the infrastructure for doing that—that's not delivering value. No, that's just the annoyance of, of having to show up at work. Right, and just getting system A to talk to system B and moving the data from place to place. Yeah, I just want to get rid of all that. I want to show up and say, you know, you have a real hard problem. Yeah. That real hard problem can only be solved by a distributed system. I want to have tools ready to make that as straightforward as possible so I can get to value today instead of value in six months. Well, this all sounds uh, super. I, I hope that uh, vision uh, comes to fruition, and I hope I can play a part in it. I would. I welcome your company, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was. I have been involved off and on in Pedestal. Not uh, recently, but I was there uh, way back at the beginning, before even the zero point three release. I think. Yeah, there are definitely. I have definitely touched lines of code where I get blame, and your name shows up. So <laughs> there are still things to to blame on me in Pedestal. I'm I'm sure of it. Well, great. Uh, before I uh, jump topics here, I'll ask, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to uh, tell people about Vase or Pedestal or uh, any of those things? Um, I think uh, by the time the listeners hear this, the Vase documentation will start to be coming together, but uh, won't be complete. But I do want to say uh, a big thanks to Mike Nygaard for helping pull together 
all of the pedestal documentation and the new pedestal site. Um, it's been really great for a lot of new users and for existing users and um, a, a wider thanks to the community for uh, putting the effort in to extend those guides and to, and to fill them out with details. Um, the, the documentation story around pedestal is much better than it, than it has been in the past. And certainly, you know, it's thanks to everybody else and not me at all. <laughs> so. Great, great. And uh, we, we should have mentioned there, there is a dedicated site for it now. Correct, pedestal.io. And uh, people can go there to find out uh, everything they ever wanted to know about Pedestal, including whatever pun we'll be working on for the next thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm starting to, we're going to be grasping at straws. But maybe that's the next thing, like the straw that you put into a vase. I, yes, I don't know. You, you put a straw in the vase and there's a flower on the straw on the vase on the pedestal. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I remember, I don't know if this is still in the code, but at one point there was a thing somewhere in the pedestal code named stylobate. Oh, the stylobate is still there. It's yeah. still there. And I remember when I first saw that, I had to go look it up on Wikipedia to figure out what it was. And now I've forgotten what it was. Do you remember? Everybody does. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> for, for me, even working in the code, I feel like a whole year went by where I kept going like, what is a stylobate? <laughs> and a stylobate is the foundation, the very bottom piece of a pedestal, that really wide, broad piece of a pedestal. Uh, okay. That is the stylobate. All right. Well, uh, I'll try to remember that for a little while, but I'll probably forget it again in a month the next time I see it. Yeah, not worth putting in the mind palace. Yeah, yeah, not not essential information. And it's down in the internals of Pedestal anyway. It's not something you necessarily need to know about. Nobody uh, would ever see it, yeah. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, we have, uh, I think, a little more time here. So if you're willing, I wanted to ask you about uh, another thing uh, unrelated to uh, closure code, at least I think it's unrelated, uh, and that is uh, competitive cycling, which uh, I've heard you, you is something that you've been uh, involved in. Yeah, I um, I have ridden a bike since I was very little, maybe five years old or so, four. I don't know when I first started riding a bike, but very little, and mm -hmm. have ridden a bike my entire life. Uh, but you're doing it right year, now, in fact. <laughs> I'm I'm sitting down looking at two bicycles. There are two <laughs> bicycles sitting in my office right now, actually. But last year I had started really focusing on, uh, you know, what does it take to actually be good at cycling? You know, if you were going to do cycling for long distances or, or high elevation gains or long trips or competitively very fast, mm -hmm. you know, what does it take to do that? So I set off trying to figure this out and you know teach myself these things and get these skills. And so this is my second year now. And I actually uh, train with professionals and ex-professionals. So people who have ridden in the professional peloton in the Grand Tours like Tour de France and uh, the Giro d'Italia. Um, I, I ride with those guys pretty regularly now. Wow. Uh, and so uh, I imagine that's pretty tough keeping up with them. I've, from what little I know of the sport, I know it can be uh, some of those long tours like the Tour de France can be absolutely grueling. Quite demanding, yeah. So for a grand tour like that, I, it, there's a lot of different kinds of races. Um, and, you know, maybe we'll get into that. But a grand tour, you know, there are three grand tours, one that happens in France, one that happens in Italy, and one that happens in Spain. Uh, they're all 21 days. Okay. And every day is like, 100 to 120 miles. Uh, 
and probably, well, I mean, there are some flat stages, but a lot of the stages are called mountain stages, and so they'll go over the Alps. Wow. Uh, they, they might go over the Alps and then back over the Alps again. Right? So, <laughs> so sometimes, you know, you go back and forth over them, and yeah, so imagine you're riding your bike 21 days in a row, 100 miles or more every single day over a to. mountain chain every single day. I don't, I don't want to imagine that, but <laughs> I, I'm sure it is, is fun for those who can do it. Yeah. And, you know, the, cycling is such a funny sport. It's just a, it's a great sport to watch. You know, I think a, people, a lot of people think, you know, when they think of cycling or competitive cycling, it's just a bunch of people racing on a bicycle from, you know, the start to the finish line. But mm -hmm. in a race, there's lots of stages. You know, there's sprint stages where you can get points and there's mountain stages where you can get points. Um, and you're just trying as a team, as a, it's a team sport. So there's anywhere from three to seven of you. You're trying as a team to accumulate as many points, and the finish line—that's only—that's only one stage, right? So, mm -hmm. so the finish line is actually not that important. It's like okay. you just have to—you have to finish in order to get your points. So Got that's it. the only reason to finish. But um, yeah, you know, and the the teams aren't—the teams are really fluid. You know, you might you might be biking it, and you might make an attack. You know, you might you might try to go faster than everybody else in the group. And other people from other teams might follow you, and now suddenly you've sort of formed yourself a mini team, just out of all these individuals that decided to do this. You know, you you have to work together, regardless of what real team you are on, in order to make those things work out for you. And so, uh, yeah, there's all these tactics about it's just a resource management game, right? It, yeah, like you can yeah. only ride a bicycle for five hours. Like after that, you're out of energy completely. So uh -huh. you've got five hours worth of energy. And your job is to either make the other team expend more energy and make sure that you don't expend more energy than the rest of the other teams, you know. So it's like all these all these tactics. It's just a it's just a an an energy management game, a resource management game. Fascinating. Like like those Euro games where you have to turn your technology resources into food resources and, and things like that. It's exactly like that. <laughs> Imagine a seven-way Euro game where alliances get randomly created and, and, and torn apart, you know, on a whim, and you're just, just exchanging one resource for another. That's exactly what competitive cycling is cool. like. It sounds like uh, it should be a board game. It, you know, I would not be surprised if there's some really old French board game that is this game. Uh, that, that'd probably be the only way in which I could actually participate in this. Um, <laughs> but I, I was fascinated by this. Uh, this came up in a, uh, one of our chat rooms uh, earlier this week. And uh, I just enjoyed your description of cycling as being like chess at 20 to 50 miles per hour. It's exactly like that. Yeah, you're you know you're making these moves. You're trying to shut down parts of the quote unquote board. You know, like mm -hmm. you're purposely trying to block parts of the road so that other teams can't use them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you never go slower than twenty miles an hour. Wow. You, know, you 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 will go up to fifty, fifty five, and you have to eat every race in the middle yeah. of the race has has a feed stop, but you don't ever stop moving, right? So. You have to grab food while you're moving past, and you're eating <laughs> sandwiches like in the middle of the race at 20 miles an hour. You know, so it's really hilarious. Yeah, it's just a it's a really funny sport. Chess at 20 to 50 miles an hour while eating sandwiches. While eating sandwiches. <laughs> yeah, that sounds uh, 
rather terrifying, frankly, um, <laughs> to be to be in the middle of that. I, I think another uh, topic that came up that uh, I found kind of fascinating was the uh, amount of energy that a competitive cyclist can put out uh, in in the course of a race. Yes, yeah, it is. Uh, mind-boggling compared to other humans and then completely not mind-boggling when you compare it to electronics you use every day. Right, so right. The average rider, when they get on a bike, probably rides a bike at 110-ish watts or so, 115 watts. Okay. And that's to go like 12 to 15 miles per hour. Okay. And a professional sprinter in the pro peloton will put out, you know, 1,500 watts. So, wow. Yeah. And and that's to go like forty miles an hour. So <laughs> so, so they could power a hairdryer yes. with the bicycle. <laughs> yeah, and so that's what that was the joke that we all started making. It's like that's basically like a hairdryer. You know, yeah, nine yeah. nine hundred watts. The joke is like, oh, you got a hairdryer. Okay, so none of us are uh, going to be relying on bicycles to power our uh, computers and electronics uh, anytime soon. No, it is the worst. <laughs> the worst. <laughs> uh, and. And you, you can actually measure these things, right? If you have little gadgets on, on bikes nowadays that can tell you how much power you're producing. Is that right? Yep, yep. Power meters in, in all different forms. So there are power meters on trainers. There are power meters on the bike. And you're measuring your, your power and your power output. Again, because it's a resource management thing. Right, right. Like right. I, I happen to know how much power I can put out for an hour. And then after that, I'm I'm out of energy. I've depleted my glycogen stores, right? So I I can't <laughs> I can't put out any more power than that. So it's uh, it's a euro game with your own bio- biological uh resources that we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah, and and you know that your body can only process 100 calories an hour, uh-huh. right? So you're limited to how many resources you can take on to try to replenish yourself, right? So it, yeah, it's a complete resource management game. Fascinating. And I'm sure there are algorithms for optimizing or, or finding optimal paths in that space. Yeah, there, there are. And people spend a lot of, I mean, like the professional teams spend a lot of time and, and money trying to figure out, you know, what's the most arrow position, what's the most uh, effective use of food at what time, at what speed, at what cadence, and so on, all that stuff. Um, but at the end of the day, it's humans on bicycles and, right. and human problems happen. Crashes happen and yeah. your, you know, your psyche happens and you're like amped up and your heart rate's going faster than it normally would when you're on the trainer. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So there's all these different, you know, caveats, you know, science, science will be damned. <laughs> yes. Science will only get you so far. Yeah. Well, that, that is fascinating. And are there, Places uh, where people can can learn about some of this stuff, or or maybe see, watch races that would explain some of these these tactics as they happen. Yeah, I think if this sounds cool to you, or you want to get a taste of it, uh, there is a YouTube channel called the Global Cycling Network. Mm-hmm. All uh, all all great videos, how tos, introductories. Uh, they cover races, and it's just you know the broadcasters are are very very friendly and very very welcoming. And that's actually how I, I got into it. I just started watching those YouTube videos and then slowly met people local to me and then started training more and more. So I think that's a great place to start. Cool. So you heard it here. If you want to learn to play chess at 30 miles an hour while eating a sandwich, uh, go to YouTube. Exactly. <laughs> 
Well, uh, I think uh, we are coming close to the end of the show here. And uh, as you know, there is, uh, well, first I have to ask, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or let people know about while you're here? Uh, no, this has been wonderful for me. Thank you very much. You are welcome. Uh, but before we let you go, we have one more question that we ask all of our guests. And that is, do you have any advice for people listening or for us? I think my only bit of, bit of advice would be uh, be kind. You know, I think, I think if everybody just thought, oh, today I'm going to be kind, uh, you know, the world would be a better place. It would indeed. That does sound nice. All right. Well, I think that wraps it up. Thank you, Paul, for taking the time to talk with us. Thanks so much, Stuart. And thank you to everyone for listening. This has been the Cognicast. You have been listening to the Cognacast. The Cognacast is a production of Cognitech Inc. Cognitech are the makers of Datomic, and we provide consulting services around it, closure, and a host of other technologies to businesses ranging from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash Cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast at cognitech.com. Our guest today was Paul DeGrandis on Twitter and most of the other things at at O-H-P-A-U-L-E-E-Z. That's at Oh, please. He's so clever. Our host in his inaugural outing was Stuart Sierra, who is at Stuart Sierra on Twitter. That's at S-T-U-A-R-T-S-I-E-R-R-A. Stuart's also clever, even if his Twitter handle isn't. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russ Olson and Damian Mack. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening.